Astrology Podcast. I am your host, Arthur Lipbonowitz. And I'm Nate Spear. And we are not, unfortunately, not joined by our co-host, Margaret, today. She couldn't make it to the recording schedule, didn't work out. Unfortunately. We miss her. We do miss yes. her terribly. So this is going to be a pretty different dynamic for you guys who listened last month. Um, Nate has not yet had a chance to listen to last month's recording, so I, I I do not get to tease him about the delight that we had at his expense. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> it was pretty fucking gnarly. Gnarly is the wrong word. It was wild. Anyway, how has the last month treated you, Nate? Oh, this last month has just been wonderful. Speaking of wild, so much, uh, so many different kinds of wild ever since, um, ever since this Mercury stationing direct out of that hellish crawl through Pisces and uh, almost like a hellish crawl with wet sandals through Pisces um, and, and all of this bursting of Aries and into Taurus energy. So here we are. Yeah, I was in sort of a similar boat where the Mercury and Pisces just sort of knocked me out. And then, oh, my God, I have all this energy now. Oh, yeah. my God, I have all this stuff to catch up on now that I have energy. Right. And, and oh, my God, gotta... I have all this new electrified energy. What's going on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the no, the new electrified energy was awesome. The desperate scramble to catch up with everything that I missed while I was crawling through Mercury and Pisces has been sort of... It's been a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scramble to catch up and crawl, crawl out of the fog or race out of the fog, <laughs> depending on the hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. Before I forget, I should mention that um, uh, we are starting this recording at 5.10 p.m. in New York, New York on April 24th, 2019. Yes. Which was the best electional chart <laughs> we could make work for our schedules. Yeah. I recently heard an, a master of electional astrology say, just lower your expectations when choosing elections. <laughs> <laughs> that is a much, uh, that is a different way of saying the thing which I've heard all over the place, which is that there's no perfect election. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time with electional astrology, for those who are maybe not familiar, it's basically elect as in choose, as in choose a specific time to start something because it's uh, astrologically auspicious. And um, there's a whole art to that. Uh, I tend to favor the uh, Chris Brennan, Lisa Scheim school of electional astrology and uh, not quite sure. Nate's more of a modern astrologer. But uh, <laughs> how dare you pigeonhole me? No, just kidding. <laughs> I don't, only... I don't really, I, yeah, I'm eclectic, let's put it that way. You're yeah. eclectic, I respect that. I will say, though, that one of the things that happened in the past month was that I was taking a break for a while from using the big four goddess asteroids in my day-to-day -day ast uh, astrological practice, and 
I was taking and and I finally fully reintroduced them to regular use. Yes. You know, I'm just I just part of it was just being able to look at a chart and sort of understand how all the pieces fit together in terms of traditional rulership schemes. Right. And that sort of Hellenistic practice before I reintroduced them, but I expected to be sticking with that longer than I did. It's just I was looking at a chart that didn't make sense without them. Yeah, I feel like I feel like as astrologers we kind of have to do that a lot. We eliminate certain things and then we put them back in. It's because this whole thing is a lifetime study and practice. So Yeah. And when we kind of go it's almost like when you're learning an art, you know, it starts with intuition and then you and the intuition prevails throughout, but then you kind of have to discipline and study and train at a certain point too, if you kind of want to develop respect for the craft. And sometimes a funny byproduct of training and discipline is you get um, you get sort of self-conscious about what you're doing. And sometimes the intuition part can sort of feel like it's going to the back burner at that point. But then, you know, gradually it, or suddenly it comes back into, the, into play again. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of how I do my astrology practice is intuitive. There's so many different things to look at in a chart. At a certain point, you just have to intuit which ones are more important and which ones are going to be more valuable yeah to the client in front of you yes i do think that there's only so far you can get with intuition alone yeah agree like i was talking about it in the group chat earlier with our new audio person we now uh if you listen to the last episode you may have noticed the audio quality was much better. We have brought on the astrologer Catherine Grubb as our audio engineer, and they have been extremely helpful in that regard. So we're going to yeah. sound a lot better now. Yes. I know I know Kat from Twitter, at Occult Problems, and they're very funny and delightful human being. So hire them to audio engineer your podcast. But anyway, the the three of us who did this podcast and Kat were talking in the group chat about this article that came out about the popularity of astrology and how a lot of people are um, starting to get into astrology. Look, it's good that a lot of people are doing astrology now. It's good that a lot of people are studying. I love that. Don't call yourself a full-blown astrologer and start charging people hundreds of dollars for a reading if you've only been studying for like a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't even necessarily put a time. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. I wouldn't necessarily put a time um, capsule or limit on it, but definitely you can tell. I think you can tell when somebody has respect for what they're doing and respect for this kind of ancient lineage and um, at the very least is committed to uh to really being rigorous about it and to deepening their approach to craft and study versus somebody who's just kind of discovered, Oh, I can, I can tell people about who they are and, and get paid for it. And, uh, and it's this easy to, you know, memorize all the symbols of a circle chart and so on. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it, I think it has a sort of double edged quality because um, I also feel at the same time that it's not, something that we necessarily want to um 
make into like an institutional thing all the time. And not that certificate programs don't have value. I think that they definitely do. But it's kind of, I think it kind of cuts both ways where we also don't want to have it be this thing where only if you have a certain kind of academic approval, therefore you're worthy of doing this or that. Um, and then the other extreme, as you just said, we don't want to have people <laughs> look up a chart online, a free chart online, and then think that they can call themselves an astrologer. I mean, not necessarily looking up the free chart online. I think the accessibility, I do appreciate the accessibility that online and computerized tools have given folks. I do appreciate that you can go to astro.com and draw up your chart. Yeah. Or draw up a hundred charts. And, yeah, for sure. You know, that's important. And I don't necessarily feel like certifications are the be-all, end-all solution. But at a certain point, you do need to have studied for multiple years. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, honestly, like, on one hand, I don't think you can put a time limit on it necessarily for everyone. On the other hand, you should, and and part of how do people do start out and part of how people do learn is by charging smaller amounts Yeah, for when they're starting out. Yeah, yeah. My mentor said to me at one point, he said, like, I didn't charge anyone for readings until I could prove to myself that I wasn't doing any harm. And I thought that was a good, that's, that's a good marker to go by in certain that cases. That is a good thing to think about. So it should be out by the time this podcast comes out. But I was featured on someone else's podcast. I was featured on Blue June's Mystic Witch podcast. And I don't think that episode's out yet as of this recording, but it should be by the time the episode is released. And one of the things we talked about there is there's a couple of terms in uh, psychological counseling. There's beneficence and there's non-malfeasance. And right. beneficence is doing good and non-malfeasance is not doing harm. Right. And those are separate things. Those are separate skills. And non-malfeasance is harder. Yeah. And you're not always going to get it right. Because, and also like, you know, you're you're never going to get that good in poker if you only bet amounts that you can afford to lose. Right. Or to put it a little less extremely, you're only going to get so good at poker if you're only paying nickel poker. Yeah. You know, you got to up the ante. You got to up the stakes. And that's why I think after a certain point, after you've been studying for a certain amount of time, charge people for readings, put your money where your mouth is. And that yep. will sort of test how good you are. But there's a difference between that and, like, charging serious money when you haven't put in serious time and serious effort. Right. But I don't want to spend too long uh, talking, <laughs> talking about philosophy and asteroid community stuff. We should get to the forecast. We should get to, we should get to the forecast to for the May. To the forecast for May. Yes, indeed. So... Let me just, we've got our own little uh, setup here. Eventually we should have video, but that's kind of out of our production budget right now. We wanted it at first, but we'll figure it out eventually. So the month of May starts out with a bunch of stuff in Aries. We've got Chiron in Aries, we've got Vesta in Aries, but we've also got like Venus and uh, Mercury. And for the first uh, day or two of May, we've also got the moon in Aries. 
yeah, a lot of pioneering and initiative kind of energy going on. You begin the month with the energy of beginning. Yep. It's a very much like boom, right out the gate kind of deal. Even though May is traditionally, we think of May in terms of the movement of the sun as the deepening into spring. So going into that more fixed zone of going deeper into the season. This particular May, we have this kind of zooming boost of Aries. At least for the, at least at first. Yeah. You know, we do start off that way. the first few days. You know, the, the, the Mercury-Mars mutual reception sextile, which we've been talking about, which we talked a little bit about last month, um, or a lot about last month, that perfects either on, like, the very last day of April or the first day of May, depending on your time zone. So, like, all this Aries stuff, at least for the first half of May, is answering to... All this Aries stuff is answering to Mars in Gemini. Mm-hmm. So that only increases the quickness and the speed and the sort of bright and a little bit roller coastery feeling of that. Yeah, it's it's a very busy feeling. Yeah, Mars in Gemini is a very... I'm a very mars person, so I always feel whatever <laughs> Mars is doing. And by the time Mars gets near the end of Gemini, I am like, stop the ride, I want to get off. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's fun for the for early degrees. But by we get the time I get to the end, I'm like, let me ride. Yeah, yeah. It's like, stop the ride, please. I'm getting nauseous. Exactly. <laughs> and it probably doesn't help that this Mars in Gemini is opposing Jupiter for a lot of the, for the first part of the month. No. Because all of that Mars energy that's ruling this, uh, well, particularly Venus and Mercury, but all the other Aries stuff, is getting blown up and made over the top by this Jupiter, which is retrograde and more prone to the overdoing aspect of Jupiter that's, you know, retrograde or in a night chart or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just this very, like, expansive, extreme sort of, pushing very hard kind of Mars for the first part of the month. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's definitely a push pull. And, um, and I think a big part of, I think it evokes, I predict a lot going on with uh, continued information coming out about um, political leaders and the way that our leaders are appearing on the international scene and, I mean, in a way that continues to just go on no matter what, but with this Absolutely. opposition, I think that this will, that it will bring out, it's likely to bring out further conflict in that regard. With the Mars-Jupiter opposition you put that on? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Interesting. Especially because Jupiter is still in this loose square to Neptune. So, so, there, so it invokes this kind of like, even potential enemies that we don't even know about yet or um or that haven't or or at the very least where there's might be too much fragmented information to be clear about what's going on yet yeah that makes sense and um there's always so much going on politically (laughs) these days with the mars jupiter opposition perfects right after the new moon the new moon is on the 4th, and the Mars-Jupiter opposition perfects on the 5th. So let's, you want to talk about that new moon? Yes, let's talk about that new moon. So we've got a new moon at 14 degrees of Taurus on May the 4th. Yep. 
it is at 6.55 p.m. in uh, New York City. Yes. We've got a sextile to Neptune, not the tightest sextile, but it's there. We've got a loose but within orb for the light trine to the boneyard. Mm-hmm. South node, Saturn, and Pluto in Cap. We've got quincunxes to uh, Pallas in Libra and Ceres in uh, Sag. But what's interesting, what's really interesting to me, and I would call this a little too wide for a semi-sextile, but we've got the fact that this moon, this new moon, is being ruled by Venus in Aries, which it can't even see. So, like the energy, right. so you you know you'd usually expect a Taurus new moon to be cool and gentle and grounding and serious and very very fertile for planting new seeds. Not not so with this one, I don't think. Not as much, no. It's still, it's about, it's about eleven degrees away from Uranus, but Uranus is sort of coloring the whole sign of Taurus while he's there for the next few years. Yeah, and it's. And you use you use a wide range for what's making an aspect to luminaries, uh, sun of the moon, and the fact that it's being ruled by Venus in Aries, which it can't even see. Like there's no there's no connection between that between the sun of the moon and uh, the Venus in terms of aspect or visibility or you know what we think of in terms of principles of visibility, right. So there's a lot more of that action. There's a lot more of that mm, kind of thing going on with this new moon. Yeah, there's a lot more of that drive and that sort of urgency. And, and that that Venus in Aries is also going back to that mutual reception of Mars and Mercury. That so, is, yeah. Yeah, so that, that busyness and that discursiveness and that just mental chatter. I just, I think of like, you know, blurting things out that maybe you don't you didn't even know that you felt that way about something but you blurt something out and that makes you realize how you felt and and at first you regret it because you don't want to you know you don't want to make waves or offend people but then it actually turns out that that brings some more clarity about where you stand on something but that that can also give rise in this lunation i think to a certain argument and stubbornness and righteousness because taurus the, the kind of fixed quality of Taurus. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I like I like that you've got, and just to sort of clarify about what we mean by going back to, we've got, so the moon is in Taurus, the, the sun of the moon in Taurus being ruled, Taurus is ruled by Venus, which is in Aries at this new moon. Aries is being ruled by Mars in Gemini. Mars in Gemini is being ruled by Mercury in Aries, which goes back to Mars in Gemini, so it's all coming back to that mutual reception exactly. on top. Yes. And I, you know, I generally like, uh, and I'm not, I don't have a lot going on in my chart that's ruled by Venus. So I'm coming at it from that position. <laughs> Whereas I'm the opposite. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I like when Venus is transiting through the signs of its detriment, Aries and Scorpio. If for no other reason than Venus world signs can be very prone to playing it nice. And mm-hmm. not actually saying what's on their mind. And if you want to have like a serious relationship conversation of cutting through the bullshit and cutting through the niceties and just being like, okay, what are we? What's going on here? 
we need to talk about this because we haven't talked about it yet, and it, it and it's been festering. You can yeah. have those conversations more readily and more easily when Venus is in a Mars ruled sign, because Venus likes to play nice, and Venus doesn't like to do the hard work of sometimes cutting things off. But sometimes you need to, you know, sometimes Venus needs to sever and separate. Yeah, it challenges Venus to sever and separate, but it's it's necessary. Side note, I tweeted this a while ago. There was that whole there's that whole thing with uh the I think it was Robert Schmidt, or might have been one of the other old school Project Hindsight Hellenistic astrology people mm-hmm. talking about how the the primary function of Mars is to sever and separate. But I really mm-hmm. think it makes more sense to refer to Ma- the primary function of Mars as to cut and to thrust. Yeah. Cause if you look at the very old, and I'm talking like Babylonian era uh symbols for mars it's a knife right mars is a knife and the primary functions of a knife are to cut and to thrust and that's mars cut covers both the sever and the separate but it doesn't cover the but sever and separate sever and separate don't cover thrust exactly (laughs) and a lot of the sexual and the pushing and the drive and the will elements of mars are so essential to what it is yeah which is why mars also you know that's why it has to go with venus too and why there's such an interplay between the two yeah venus is the melding or the the kind of consummation but you also need that mars to do the thrusting absolutely Yeah. yeah interestingly this this um I mean, I'm, I, my head is a lot in the, the decans right now and in the mansions of the moon because so that's just where my studies have been going. So, I, I, so I've been looking at the Picatrix and seeing these, um, which, by the way, I mean, if, if listeners of this podcast, I recommend taking a look at the Picatrix, depending on where you are in your astrological studies. But it's, um, it's very provocative, and it's a canonical piece of astrological magic. The Picatrix, I, I have a copy of the Picatrix. I am yeah. I, I am making my way through the Picatrix very, very slowly. Me too. Because that yeah. book will test you. Oh, yes. It it really, really tests. Yes, it tests that you. That book is a troll. That Strongly. book will, like, recommend you use incense recipes that cre- will, in effect, create smoke that will kill you. Yes. Because it expects you to know what you're doing. It expects you to come at the book with an already existing body of knowledge. And if you don't, then, and you just try the stuff in it without really thinking through, it's, you're going to have yeah. a bad time. Yeah, right. Or, you know, it also tests, it, it, it tests you not only in the way that, of um, the way that what you're doing affects you, but also in terms of your ethical moral compass it talks about you know an image for the destruction of a city or I was that is exactly you know. <laughs> the example I was thinking about <laughs> yeah. or burning down buildings or um, you know br- to bring peril to those who are traveling by wagon or <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. wagon there are a lot of wagons in the Picatrix yeah there's also <laughs> randomly like talismans to attract fish yeah. Which is just so funny. Like, right. there's this the, one yeah, talisman. Yeah. So, the Picatrix <laughs> is basically, like, the manual of astrological magic. Yeah. Um. Right now, the best translation available is by Christopher Warnock and... Um, John Michael, John Michael Greer. Greer. 
And uh, the Warnock Beard translation is really the best you can get right now. There's going to be a new translation coming out sometime this year, which is going to be based on the Arabic. Yeah. The Arabic original, but um, that's not out yet as of this recording. Um, this year or next year, I think this year. I wish I could remember the name of the woman who's translating it. Yeah. So anyway, making a physical metal astrological talisman is rough. It's not it's rough. It's like, it's labor-intensive, it's expensive, you're putting actual metal to, into it, there's, it's time-consuming, there's, there's a lot involved in the process. You have to use, like, actual fucking gemstones in it. And as some of as as they say in the introduction to this translation of the Picatrix, some of the ingredients in the text are illegal to possess. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Or like yeah, yeah, illegal or like weird. Like where right. am I supposed to get rabbit vulva? Yeah. Yeah, or donkey piss or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, well, it's pretty easy to get donkey. <laughs> that actually piss. might not be that hard. <laughs> no. Um, um, but some of the ingredients are very illegal. If there's can be substitutions, and a lot of people when they're making talismans, they'll just they'll make a paper talisman to start out with, or just you know yeah. just get a you know the diamond tipped stylus and scratch symbols into a friggin' uh silver disc you can get off of uh, the internet. Anyway, but if you're casting a physical talisman, it's generally like labor intensive and whatnot and expensive, and there's this one talisman in there where the idea is you make this talisman. And then you throw it into a lake wow. to get more fish to appear. Wow. Yeah. And like, I suppose if you're a fisherman or a fisher person that, and you really need like lots of expensive fish that might, you might make a profit off of that. Yeah. But just the idea of throwing a talisman <laughs> into a lake to get fish is like boggles the mind right and, and the that's whole when you remember that this thing. was written in what 1250 or that or that's when yeah that's exactly. when it was known to be dated yeah oh it, no absolutely yeah. it is i mean or 950 or something yeah more like who that. knows yeah, yeah. like but there's it, this whole other world yeah but still it's still exp it's still expensive to make a talisman in those days maybe even more so because you've got to get the blacksmith and whatnot right and the the metals are even harder to come by. You can't just order silver off the internet and you throw it into a lake. Yeah. Yeah, I, I brought it up actually because because I looked at oh where what mansion of the moon is this new moon in in the Oh Picatrix? right, right. And, it was um, actually was relevant to the new moon. No, yeah, and and uh and interestingly this mansion of the moon where where 14 Tauruses, it actually involves, according to the text, making Im making images of discord, uh, destruction, and severing, which is not what we normally think of as associated with Taurus. Yeah. But, but, they, but the specific examples that they give are involve buildings and, um, you know, severing relationships and... Oh, interesting. Um, you know... Uh, it says, you know, the destruction of cities and villages and for any other building that you wish not to endure. <laughs> so like the Amazon headquarters. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, no, how, and that's how it tests you is like, 
wait a second, what is the compassionate action? What is the, what is the right thing to do in this case? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, if like an evil corporation is trying to build a, a, a terrible thing that'll ruin your community, maybe that's an ethical use of like preventing a building from being built. Maybe that's right. an ethical time to use some, you know, cursing magic. I yes, wouldn't, but exactly. that's just because I've got the angels don't let me do net bat don't let me do curses of any kind. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. And I mean yeah. Taurus Taurus is generally thought of as the builder of the zodiac. Um so at first I at first I looked at that, I thought, what does this really have to do with the energy of Taurus? But of course, when you think about buildings, um what what's needed to build a building uh, when you consider what's needed to build a building, you can't really leave out the idea of a building falling apart or being renovated or being yeah. extended or changed somehow. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We should probably, um, for the people a little bit lost on Lunar Mansions, they're basically, um, how would we explain Lunar Mansions? It's kind of an alternate zodiac specifically for the moon. Of like twenty seven or twenty eight, depending on which system you're using, little pieces of the zodiac, uh, equal sized, um, which and when the moon falls into a different one, it means different things. It corresponds to different things. It's usable for different things in terms of planetary magic. Some people will interpret your natal moon in sort of natal astrology, based on what what lunar mansion it's in. There's a similar in concept, but very different in practice idea in uh, Jyotish, uh, Vedic astrology of the nakshatras. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other topic. Right. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. And there are 28 mansions of the moon. Yeah. Well, I think some systems some... use 27. Right. Yeah. I know some systems very use likely. 27. So just to sum it up in terms of interpreting this new moon, it's sort of, if we want to give more practical advice, I kind of want to say it's it's not necessarily good for establishing new structures, but maybe in terms of tearing down old structures to build something new in the place. Yeah. It's for weeding your garden, not planting new seeds. Yeah, especially with Uranus, with, with our, you know, the, we're right at the beginning of our Uranus stint in Taurus. Yes, and, we and are. And Taurus does not, I mean, Taurus doesn't like change. But. That's I, what I, it's getting. But I was reminded, the, if that's what it's getting. And I was reminded the other day of this little tidbit about cows need to be moved. Because if they stay in one place for too long, they destroy the soil. And I thought, man, that is a really good lesson about Taurus. <laughs> and it's a really yeah. good metaphor for this new moon. It is, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think you said it really well. It's not really about building new structures, this new moon. It's about doing renovations. It's about doing renovations. It's as and if... weeding the garden. Yeah. It, it could be... And it could feel uncomfortable. It likely will feel, I mean... Uranus being this kind of looming figure, it, it can bring instability, but it could also be reframed as, as if you are in a jail cell and someone's just beaten down the door to your cell and says, hey, you can go out and live now in the world, 
now what resources do you want to have and what resources do you need to have in order to have freedom of choice now that you don't need to be in this cell anymore because now the revolution's happening and there might well, be like revolution's a not happening yet right right i'd wait until I, at least until the jupiter saturn conjunction next year for oh that. sure sure yeah but no but sure but we might be we might feel the feelings of it or i'm i'm mainly i said i said the word revolution to give context for this image but you know tourists will t would, might tend to react to having their cell broken down with oh no 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 i what, what do you mean go out what do you mean get out of this cell I've finally adjusted to this. I've adjusted to the cell that I'm in and I'm finally feel control in control of my limitations. I should honor them. <laughs> so that's so but Taurus needs they they need to have that status quo broken down. Absolutely. So, yeah. So speaking of Taurus, mm -hmm. like the like a couple days later on May 6th, we've got Mercury entering Taurus. Yeah. <laughs> so we're finally starting to get, um, so that's the first bit of moving, uh, really moving out of Aries season. Yeah. I mean, the sun's out of Aries, but like the, we're starting to have more planets moving out of Aries. Yes. Merc tell us about Mercury and Taurus, Nate. Oh, I'd be glad to. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel that Mercury gets diluted a lot and reduced in modern terms to communication and and this is where this is where the psychological approaches can be more limited sometimes is that we need to be able to consider the scope of a planet in in all in terms of all of the planes of being that it exists on so it's not only about you know mercury is the way that i think and communicate Mercury is also Hermes. Mercury is also, as we've said in past episodes, the trickster god. Mercury, Hermes, they have connections to Loki, to all these tricksters, and to all of these deities that are able to move between all of the different planes of existence, and to be able to find communication and commonality between the different planes of existence. So, I mean, I'll start with Mercury in terms of in terms of communication and thinking, because I think that's a helpful personal place to kind of ground the issue of Mercury. So Mercury being communication and thinking style, thought process, learning style even, in certain cases. Being in Taurus, um, Mercury has a quality of wanting to build with ideas. So Taurus, I mean, it, anywhere you see Taurus, try attaching the word build to it and see what you get. So Mercury, in terms of building thoughts, building ideas, Mercury and Taurus wants things to... Wants, things, wants ideas not just for the sake of ideas and information, but wants things that will be in, in those terms or in that situation perhaps valuable, resourceful and ideas that will add up. Uh, Mercury and Taurus also wants to use all of its resourcefulness in terms of its hands. I mean, since Mercury is also kind of, Mercury also involves the dexterity of hands. Um, Mercury and Taurus quite literally wants to use the hands and build in a lot of cases or garden. 
Um, so Mercury thinking style, communication style in Taurus. Mercury is also uh, in Taurus can be a, a bit more slow to communicate depending I've on been, depending on other factors going on in your chart. I've been thinking a lot about that keyword of Mercury of of slow when mm -hmm. it comes to Taurus. Mm -hmm. And you know, slow is sometimes used as an insult and that's not yeah. really what's meant. You know, it's not like if you have Mercury and you know, you have Mercury in Taurus, therefore you're slow her her. No. It's deliberate. Yeah. Mercury in Tor Mercury in Taurus is deliberate yep. in terms of how it communicates, in terms of how they want to be heard, how, what they want to say. Yeah. There is a steady, deliberate, piece by piece, moving through the steps of what needs to be said. Yes. And how things need to be thought about, you know. Mercury yeah. is communication, but it's a lot of the analytical brain function as well. A lot of the puzzle solving, a lot of the organizational thought process. People with a Mercury that's not always doing so well all don't always do well with the organizational thinking. Yeah. And so... Mercury and Taurus is going to organize things piece by piece by piece. Yes. Yeah, and Taurus is also associated with the voice. Absolutely. As Venus is associated with the voice. So Mercury and Taurus, Mercury and Taurus may have a resonant voice, a strong, strongly communicative voice. A deep and powerful voice. Yes, a deep and powerful voice. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, Mercury and Taurus, it's not slow in an insulting way. It's deliberate. And even Taurus doesn't always have a reputation for being deep. That might be more associated with its polarity sign, Scorpio. But each fixed sign has its own form of depth in terms of going further into something, going further into a season. So that, that's kind of the root metaphor, going further into a certain quality. So Mercury and Taurus might not be one to flit around from here to there in their thinking or in their in all the different ideas or pieces of information they're thinking about the way that Gemini would be. Nor would they necessarily be inclined to zoom out and frame everything in terms of the bigger picture. Mercury and Taurus wants to deliberately, thoroughly uh, examine the sensuousness of the idea that is presenting itself. So it might sometimes be inclined more to focus on one branch of the tree as opposed to the whole forest. In terms of taking its time chewing things over. Yeah, exactly. Like a cow. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and also yeah. like a fixed earth sign, deep in terms of developing deep roots. Yes, yes. As soon as they enter Taurus, Mercury immediately comes into contact with Uranus. Yes, exactly. Which makes it harder to do the so steady and deliberate thing. So it's almost like I'm trying to come up with a good metaphor. Like an SUV with rocket boosters. <laughs> That's good. That's good, or yeah. not even that, like... Uh, Zooming through the air like a well-thrown brick. 
Yeah. And not necessarily in a destructive way, but like this big, solid, and heavy thing meeting Uranus and going. Mm hmm. Yeah, or if you think about the bull, that Taurus as the bull, which, you know, in the myth, Zeus transformed himself into a bull. In some versions of the myth, Zeus transformed himself into a bull to make himself sexier. Uh, and, that, and that bull was Taurus. And yeah. Mercury itself is associated with movement, the movement of thought. So the movement of the bull. And Uranus is associated with electricity, so it's almost like a cattle prod uh, in the ass of that bull. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, like a bull, get, a bull getting electrocuted. But yeah, that too. <laughs> yes. So probably around this time, around like first couple of days that Mercury is in Taurus, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth, around then, you know, sudden flashes of insight. And yeah. thinking with the Mercury Uranus, but wants to take a long time to really put into thorough plans of action. Yes, exactly. But also around this time, and I do, and I, I do want to be, speaking of time, I want to be conscious of it. We've got Venus is squaring the boneyard. Venus is particularly squaring Saturn around the same time. Mm -hmm. And then later on to Pluto. So... The ruler of Taurus is kind of besieged at this point, in a sign that she's not but that she doesn't do necessarily the best in, right? You know, getting squared by the boneyard of the South Node, Saturn, and Pluto, in a position. Man, that boneyard has been in a position to do a lot of harm to Aries. Yeah, it has. And here Venus is coming into it, so like, just don't. It it feel like around that same time that the mind is going. A king that you've got relationship stuff might be particularly under strain and particularly under stress and particularly under questioning and particularly under, oh my god, are we having this same argument again? Why are we always having this argument? And then you start arguing about the fact that you always have the same argument. You know, first week or so of May, week and a half might be pretty stressful for a relationship in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Yeah, because you got that mercury that communication being slammed and being electrified and then you got venus <laughs> squaring that getting a square from that boneyard of saturn and pluto that's right absolutely yeah but then yeah after that she moves on to better territory though i think the next main thing going on in may chronologically is on the 15th where at least in the east coast You've got Venus and Mars changing signs on the same day. Yes. So you've got Venus going into her own territory of... Of Taurus. Taurus, and Mars going into what is hostile territory for him of Cancer. Yep. Although right before that, like the day before that, they do sextile each other. Yeah. Right, they make that soft, supportive aspect to each other just before that big change. It'll be interesting to see how sort of that plays out in practice with the, you know, Venus and Mars supporting each other and, you know, nice, easy aspect, and then boom, everything changes. Yes. Any question, any uh, horary charts? We're still figuring out what our audience's level is. Yeah. For people who don't know, a horary chart is basically you cast a chart for the moment a uh, question is asked and understood, and then the chart tells you the answer. That's the basic version. Right. So when I was talking about this a bit with a horary astrologer on Twitter, Wade Caves, great horary astrologer. Um, no, I wasn't talking about it on Twitter. I was talking about it on a feed talk he gave. Anyway, 
how you've got uh this sextile and it might be the, the story of that might be things seem really good and you know the venus party is like really open to the mars party and then right after that the game changes and people both sides are in a different position and venus isn't necessarily listening to mars anymore and mars is you know in a bit of a sour shape himself yes because venus likes being in taurus she gets to do all of her sensual you know, vava voom kind of when you're good to mama stuff there. Yeah, Venus is at home in Taurus. Absolutely. But, but Mars in Cancer, yeah. Mars can Mars can cry in Cancer. Mars can turn Mars can become steam in Cancer, maybe. Mars's main weapon in Cancer is crying. Yep. That's no, that's not fair to Cancer as well, <laughs> people with Mars in Cancer. <laughs> Mars's main weapon in Cancer is emotions and I don't know, a cookbook. Because when you've right. got Mars in Cancer, you've got this trying to fight with it reminds me of sort of like those those there's this dude on I forget his name. There's this video game guy on YouTube who does plays through the game of Dark Souls. This really difficult game trying to do the entire game with all sorts of ridiculous restrictions and one of the ones he did was trying to make it all the way through this brutally hard game using only a ladle as a weapon <laughs> and there that's we go. mars and cancer that's mars and cancer yeah 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 you can scoop the soup and then you know splash it on someone's head or like dump it on somebody's it, head yeah it's hard to be really <laughs> aggressive and forceful when the th when you care so much about your own feelings and emotional security yep it's hard to really push forward and be aggressive and go getting when you're really really comfortable at home in bed and your own feelings are super sensitive yes it's hard to take out a weapon when you're constantly focused on when you're wearing really thick, heavy armor. You can't swing the weapon too fast. Yeah. And the crab does like uh, their armor. Crab does like their armor. And there are hard shell crabs and soft shell crabs. And the soft shell crabs get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of the cancer philosophy. You know, fuck you. I'm, I've got my own fucking walls and you don't get inside them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting about cancer is mythically is that Hera, you know, when when uh, Hercules was in his battle with the Hydra, Hera decided to send down this crab as this kind of buffer, as as some as a way to help the Hydra defeat Hercules, as if the Hydra needed help. But Hercules smashed the crab. He just like, shoom, crab is done, and then Hera honored this crab by sending the crab up to the up to the sky and making the constellation cancer from the crab so there's this sense in which you know in in hellenic uh religion hera is actually very involved in the differentiation of the mortal soul so so of like the process of a soul coming to be what it is uh on an individual level and the stories of the gods and the heroes are really uh, of which Hercules, as we know, is a hero. So the stories of the gods and the heroes are a lot about how souls, how conflict of the divine and mortal realms influence the process of souls coming into their being. And so it's almost as if the crab was this sort of intermediary whereby 
um, it could it was able to create to help now now we're talking on a cosmic level create the boundaries by which souls can form themselves if we think about cancer and boundaries you know the boundaries of the home and the family of the you know literal the literal skin on the body and also the emotional body and psychic containers so, <laughs> so that's the connection between cancer and the coming into being of the soul absolutely yeah yeah cancer needs its security and also just i mean one more thing on this is the um I always like to glance at the birth chart of the United States of America just to see like, oh, what's going on on a collective level in this other way? And in the Sibley chart. The Sibley well, chart is like the most popular chart used for the birth of the United States. It's right. Like 5.10 p.m.-ish. Oh, there's a coincidence. It is 5.10. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, 5.10 p.m. There's a rectification done by Dane Rudyard to 5.13 something yeah. or something like that. I prefer the Rudyard rectification. Yeah. Anyway, the 5.10 p.m. chart on July 4th, 1776, Philadelphia, PA. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, the U.S. has a, a stellium of planets in Cancer. Right. And in the 8th house. Um, well, actually, no, the sun The sun is in the 7th house, but it's still that, that Cancer stellium goes all the way up to the 8th house. Um, so... If it's a whole sign chart, it's all in the eighth house. It, yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that that is true. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, so, but they probably weren't using whole sign houses, to be fair. No, yeah, and I might have, and actually, the last time I looked at it, I might have been looking at porphyry, actually. <laughs> so I, I'm probably I, all confused, but yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I don't know. I'm just, th I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the stock market i'm thinking about how this entire month you know taurus the, the focus of taurus and venus and the different permutations of them are about resources and how we relate to our resources which obviously includes money and also on a collective level the country we're dealing with questions about uh, dealing with economic questions in a more pronounced way well the the boneyard is going through the the second house of the assembly chart yes exactly yeah one thing that um the astrologer austin Coppock has talked about is that every time saturn goes through capricorn which is the second house of the you know which is you yeah. know the money of the united states we suffer an economic downturn yeah yeah that's a good that's a, that's a good point and we are also due for the first pluto return of the usa we are having the Pluto return of the yeah. USA. Yeah. It's just a really long return. It's a long one. So, and, and I mean, this is a more common happening, but uh, the USA will have had its Mars return as well by the time. Oh, it's got, oh, the, I'd forgotten that it had Mars in Cancer. It actually has Mars in Gemini. At oh, that makes has, more sense. Yeah, yeah. It has Mars at 21 Gemini. Well, so pretty much weeks before. Yeah, right at May 31st, May... Oh, yeah. Sorry, not May 31st. Around May 1st or 2nd is when my... Yeah, May 2nd. Okay. It will have had... So it will have its Mars return. So, yeah. So things coming to light, crises, financial crises, 7th house, close international relations. 
that my point being we can see we can start to see these ramifications we're just dealing with an inner planet or a personal planet changing a sign but we can also start to see these ramifications of it collectively what's going on collectively yeah yeah Yeah, I think one thing to keep in mind in terms of what's going on individually is that if you've got, like, important stuff in Aries, if you've got, like, major planets in Aries or Scorpio, actually, Mm -hmm. which are the Mars-ruled signs, or if you're in a year, if you're in an annual perfection involving Mars, which um, I think we talked about that annual Mm -hmm. perfection a bit previously, yeah, then you're likely to... uh, once Mars goes into Cancer, it's likely to be a major just like whoop downturn in terms of your energy level. Yeah, which might be and which will probably feel like a nice little break at first after the you know because it'll involve getting off the roller coaster of Mars and Gemini. <laughs> Expect there to be less juice in the tank for most people who rely on Mars to get their shit done. Yeah, when you get off the roller coaster, do you? land in a hot tub or do you land in the ocean in the middle of the ocean <laughs> well yeah, yeah i mean generally what happens when you get off the roller coaster is you is that you're like whoa and <laughs> right. then maybe you vomit and then you feel better for a little while and then you feel really crappy and need to go lie down for a minute yeah not to That's get right. too graphic <laughs> we hope our listeners are not seasick by this point <laughs> I feel like our listeners are kind of used to us by now. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. So. And Venus, on the other hand, it's happening while Venus is in Taurus. And Venus in Taurus is just plain nice. Right. You know. I mean, she's conjoined Uranus right when she gets into Taurus for the first couple of days, 15th, 16th, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for the first few days. About a week after she goes in, I think she's still pretty close to them. Just sudden changes in relationship dynamics or sudden urges to mix things up in terms of relationships and in terms of aesthetic yes. and beauty and, like, try new choices in terms of your comfort food, in terms of, like, what your look is, stuff yep. like that. Yep. Yeah, it's a good time to spice up that wardrobe or have that period where you go wait what is my style actually and yeah yeah. i mean it wouldn't make any huge irreversible changes because uranus is about experimentation yeah it's trying things absolutely yeah and they're still like and uranus and venus are still pretty darn close to each other when we get to uh the full moon on may 18th right they're only one they're only a degree apart at that point uh, less than or, you've got yeah. Uranus at three fifty nine and uh, oh, right. Venus at four thirteen. That is like less than a quarter of a degree yeah. apart. So we've got the new moon on May eighteenth in New York City. It is at five eleven p.m. and we've got the moon at twenty seven degrees of Scorpio, which is not a sign the moon is happy in. No, yeah. And we've got the sun at 27 degrees of Taurus, which is pretty darn close to Algol. Mm-hmm. Now, Algol is one of the more malefic fixed stars. It's one of maybe the most malefic fixed star in the sky, which is not to say that if you've got, if you're born with something close to Algol, which is around the end of Taurus, that you're necessarily doomed. It's just that... No. I mean, there's, I often see it very prominent in the charts of uh, people who devote their lives to witchcraft, for example. Mm-hmm. 
or there's an association of Algol with alcohol. Like, like I know somebody who's got a very Algol chart. Lovely man, sweetest man I've ever met. Drinks constantly. Functions fully with no problems. And I also know someone with Algol who, from the kink scene, who is really into getting his uh, back just absolutely shredded by whips. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there is that aspect of that total complete destruction going on uh, in that sense, where it's actually entirely consensual and healthily expressed. And the transmutation of darkness, which, yeah, is also what, which is also what Scorpio is about in many ways. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't work with the alcohol energy well, if you don't consciously harness it, you get your head chopped off. That happens right. sometimes. Not always. It's one of the things that can happen. Or there's other issues of abuse and losing your head figuratively in terms of like dissociation or mental illness. Yeah. Or addiction. Yes. Well, and it seems like it seems that through this time of Uranus and Taurus, we'll all be challenged to relate with that energy in different ways. Um, so that there's no mm, there's no fixed point where it's like, oh, I've got it. I know how I'm relating with the alcohol energy, right? But we are challenged time and again. Yeah. I would not tell Uranus to alcohol until until the he gets way closer to her. Sure. But I think it is part of the Taurus story in a in but there's the Taurus story has different phases and Algol's more closer yeah. towards the end. Very close to the end, yeah. Yeah. So I always bring up should you or should you not charge your crystal on this moon just because mm. it's something that friends of mine always ask me. Mm-hmm. And the full moon on the eighteenth is definitely a do not charge your crystal kind of moon. Yeah. The thing that this moon is most closely configured to is Algol, I was going to say, in terms of planets, there's Mercury is still pretty close to the sun. Yeah, Mercury is pretty close there. Yeah, but the moon is also, I mean, it goes void, of course, after this. Um, the moon is, they're, they're not really aspecting much of anything besides Mercury. No. There are, well, there's a square to black moon Lilith. Cross sign. That's about yeah. it. Which just, which just, okay. So that's something to note. So we've got the square to, to the black moon Lilith. Yeah. We've got the moon on. We've got the sun on Algol, and we've got the moon in Scorpio. So just this is like, so this is what we call like stack testimonies when you've got three significations of a thing. This is like a dark, destructive goddess energy kind of moon. Definitely, like the dark and grimy and feminine and uh getting into the 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 scary places kind of moon it's more of a time for going inward and for exploring the shadows i if you want to do like quiet contemplative shadow work it would just as long as you do it consciously you know yeah this is not a night to do this is not a night to do psychedelics and see what comes up no, no, no. It's it's yeah. It's not a night for experimentation so much with something that feels like it's very emotionally risky for you. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, it's also not an. I mean, if you are going to do any sort of deep inner shadow work, just know that it could be darker and more intense and scary. And 
unless you've got a spiritual background where you're like, okay, bringing in guides, protectors, angels, whoever it is helps you to more consciously deal with the energy, then you might just end up going into the darkness without much fruit coming back. Right. Meditate responsibly. Pretty much. Yeah. And uh, with alcohol and the moon being in a water sign and uh, Lilith being in Pisces, be conscious of how much you drink or indulge in any other substance. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It's, it's, more, it's more about restraint in that sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And hey, some stuff is scary. It doesn't mean doom and gloom. It doesn't mean, ah, we're all going to die. It just, you know, sometimes you get a fight. Sometimes things are a little more intense. And generally, life moves on, you know? Yeah. These configurations come up sometimes. Some of, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not, oh my God, we're all going to die. It's, this is some darker stuff. It needs to be treated with respect yeah like the picatrix like the picatrix yeah <laughs> i'm i'm thinking about this too in terms of this taurus scorpio theme of resources and value um and money both in the sense of money because that's just such a big way that it affects all of us but also in terms of merged values in all the ways that that can show up yeah. um, and i think if memory serves me the faces or the the decans of this of of the third face of Taurus and also of Scorpio, I think both involve nobility, power, wealth of of some form, or or of this kind of poverty mentality. Um, the extremes, yeah. the extremes of the sort of you know hoarding or accumulation versus the poverty mentality and the the fe the dread and the fear. So I'm thinking about how to approach... Fear of lack. Fear of lack, exactly. So I'm thinking about how to approach, you know, how to harness this energy in a healthy way to, in terms of the way that we think about our relationship to resources. You know, suppose that um, somebody can't avoid, you know, signing a lease during this time or... Um, or, or I mean, putting down that, you know, buy, or buying a house or something like that. It's bound to bring up certain things, but, but we can still relate to it in a healthy way. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're willing to go into the shadows, very often you find out that's where the gold is buried. Yeah. Literal and figurative, uh, and especially psychological. Exactly. Sometimes I'm critical of when people say, you know, when people sort of talk about abundance and um, confronting the fear of lack or the poverty mentality, sometimes I look at those kinds of things and say, well, that's kind of a very a deeply entrenched sort of capitalist um, indoctrination of mindset. But there's an aspect yeah. of it that's valuable in terms of um, in terms of dealing with fear of lack and you know facing your or having a new realization of your own resourcefulness in a different way absolutely yeah yeah i mean i'm friends with a lot of sex workers i am very much on board with the fuck you pay me yeah but not everything has to be commodified not every relationship between two people has to have a monetary component yeah. you know that's the especially friendship yeah. um 
And I think that also, I mean, a lot of the time when people will talk about poverty mentality and sort of use it as an excuse, like you're in a very like toxic Calvinist, like you are poor because you believe you are poor. Yeah. And that's not true. That's so far from the truth. But yeah. there is also multi-generational poverty trauma that keeps people trapped in cycles which then interacts with the capitalist system that is affecting everybody and impoverishing huge numbers of people yeah you know that's right and and part of where those generations of poverty trauma come from which affect and keep people trapped are from generations of capitalist oppression yeah yeah Oof. very true we got real heavy there. Let's <laughs> move on to a lighter topic. That's the lunation. Well, well, the next topic I think is is fairly next light. Next topic is going to be fun. <laughs> so, on the on May twenty first, on May twenty first, we've got Mercury and the Sun both enter Gemini and then conjoin all within the space of about five hours on uh, Tuesday morning. You know, wow. if it was a Wednesday morning, it would be absolutely perfect for planetary magic. Mm -hmm. But alas, <laughs> because Wednesday's Mercury's day. So, yeah. so when a planet goes Kazemi, it's being in the heart of the sun. It's when a planet is right up there, like less than a degree or to exactly conjunct the sun. When a planet's like within 15 degrees, but more than a degree away from the sun, it tends to be burnt up by the sun rays, and it's not necessarily as in good shape. And it's in pretty bad shape, especially if it's in with within like eight and a half degrees. There are about different people use different orbs. But yeah. when it's right there, right at the center of the sun, then it is transformed through the fires of the sun, and that is Kazemi, and a planet Kazemi is very, very strong. And here yes. we've got Mercury in their own sign, of Gemini, already strong, conjoined the sun, very strong, right at the start, start, start of Gemini. Yeah. And the start of, and that is a very powerful position to be in, mostly. I do find that, similar to what we were talking about with the end of Scorpio and Taurus, that the last degrees of Scorpio and Taurus, like the 29 degree and the first degree, the zero degree of Sagittarius and Gemini can do have this energy to them of sort of perpetually being caught in traps of one's own making. Mm -hmm. Like there's an ebullience there. There's a brilliance there. There's a, there's a incredible power there, but it's a power that often trips over itself on its way up. Hmm. There may be a little bit of a naivete there. Yeah. Naivete or sort of a, I, I want to say like a self being blind to one's own fault. Mm-hmm. And getting caught, and I would call it getting caught in traps of one's own making, generally. Yeah, but that's more in terms of a natal perspective. In terms of like what, in, in terms of like the magical energy and the mundane energy, there's a lot more of this is very strong, very powerful Mercury. So all of that stuff we were talking about earlier, in terms of communication, in terms of like left brain thinking, of an analysis and organization and frontal cortex and like yeah. all of this this mind mental thinking stuff gonna be really powerful that tuesday morning yes so if you wake up with a flash of brilliance write that shit 
down. Because mm-hmm. it's most likely going to be really good and really valuable. Right. Especially a breath of fresh air in terms of lightness and energy and up after the dark heavy of the full moon. Yeah. Mercury goes steadily but quickly through Taurus and then boom, flash. He makes that appearance in Gemini. Exactly. Oh, one final thing I do want to talk about. On the 29th, we've got Mercury square Neptune. Yes. So Mercury in Gemini is generally pretty strong, but Mercury square Neptune... I mean, when Mercury's making a hard aspect to Neptune, that is a big part of... That is a big part of why the Mercury retrograde in March was such a doozy. Oh, yeah. But we've also got Mercury opposed Jupiter at the same time. So this is a Mercury... So, yeah, right there around the last couple days of the month, you've got Mercury that's struggling to do the Mercury stuff. But they're in their own sign, so they're doing a little bit better with it. You know, they're doing it better than they could be. They've got the support of Jupiter... I would say what that energy would look like in terms of how it's showing up in people's lives right there at the end of mm-hmm. end of May is overthinking, overanalyzing, and probably going to work out fine, but coming to a lot of wrong conclusions and a lot of yeah. you know, false starts and meanderings down alternate paths right, along I, yeah. the way with that overthinking. Yeah, I would say possibly information being colored or clouded by dogmatic opinion or colored over by what appears the most seductive. That's a good way to think about it. I like that. Yeah. <sighs> so on that note, I think we want to call it an episode. Yeah. Um, if you enjoyed our podcast, if you appreciated our way of doing these things if you found our insights helpful please uh leave us a review and a like and a subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on if you want to hear more from us we are at bird's eye astro on twitter at bird's eye astrology on instagram you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to support the program and help us get better audio equipment and pay our uh, audio engineer better. Um, you can support us at patreon.com slash bird's eye astrology. I am on social media. I am on social media uh, at lip and bone on Twitter at readings by Arthur on Instagram. You can find me at arthurlipbonowitz.com. Um, if you'd like to get a reading from me, I love doing readings. It's uh, my favorite part of being an astrologer. I also do tarot readings and angel readings. Uh, the quick link for that is bit.ly slash ALB read. That is bit.ly slash A-L-B-R-E-A-D. What about you, Nate? Great. I'm uh, on Instagram at mythopoetic underscore astrology and on Facebook at mythopoetic astrology. Uh, and I also give readings, love to do readings. Um, if you want to book a reading, just send me a direct message at Mythopoetic Astrology on Instagram or email mythopoeticastrology at gmail.com. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.